Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, movie truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth in Movies. I'm Leila Latif. I'm Christina Newland. And I'm Jack King. On the show this week, Michael B. Jordan stars and makes his directorial debut in Creed 3. Coming of Age is Agony in Close, and The White Lies editor David Jenkins spoke to the director Lucas Donald about his Oscar-nominated film. And on Film Club, we'll be looking at another black movie star's directorial debut to celebrate the restoration and re-release of Sidney Poitier's Back and the Preacher. All coming up on Truth in Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Welcome back to the two of you. It feels a bit weird saying saying welcome since we've actually just been catching up for like 20 minutes, but (laughs) welcome to the public portion of this conversation. Christina, you've been on reasonably recently, so people should remember who you are, but what have you been up to of late? I have been, actually, it's been a very Creed heavy week for me. So I was reviewing Creed earlier this week. And I've also reviewed a doc out this weekend called Fashion Reimagined, which is about fashion designers' journey to make a completely sustainable fashion line for London Fashion Week, a brand called Mother of Pearl. So that's that's what I've been writing this week. This is like a real time of all of your interests coming together then. You've got fashion, a Western, boxing. Yeah, this is great. This is it should it should always be like this, but unfortunately not always the case. And Jack, you're back from uh, the last time we were on this was my first episode as host. It's lovely to see you again. Yeah, what what episode was that again? Remind me. Was it was it um was it when we did Multiverse of Madness? Doctor Strange. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, at least we're doing a better film this time. Love that. <laughs> what, what 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 luck. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, I I can't even think how long ago that would have been because the MCU just feels like one continual thing for me. Well, in that case, you'll definitely do a reintroduction. Who are you, Mr. Jack King? Well, my my name is Jack King. I I, I write about culture for GQ, which basically means I'm an elevated blogger. Uh, but no, I um I've I've it's been a, we were talking about this earlier. It's been a really quiet period culturally over the last couple of months. I think you know obviously, and it was kind of like we've had award season, so so much focus is tilted towards the films, you know, up for like the slew of Oscars and everything like that. So it's just you know that constant cycle of the whale and you know triangle of sadness and am i what, what am i what am i missing there that's really obvious uh everything everywhere all at once you know everything is just everywhere all at once and yeah no it's it's been fine um i'm very happy to be here to do creed 3 i really really enjoyed that movie as we'll get into it and uh, and yeah also we we do one of the things we do at gq is a series called fitness diary which is exactly what it says in the tin where we interview different actors and stuff about fitness regimes i was really fortunate to do it with michael b jordan and jonathan majors so i had nine minutes in a junket slot with these two wonderful gorgeous men and i was you know they obviously talked to them all about their fitness regimes and everything which was so fascinating um and i'm sure they've never talked about it with anybody before and jonathan majors had his cup his like famous i guess porcelain cup that he's he had on the cover for the shoot for the cut i don't know if you guys saw it uh but like where he's in that gorgeous vest and his biceps are you know bigger than his head and the cup is either very small or he's just a very large man you can't really tell and yeah it was, it was the most exciting moment of my week i think to see to see the cup in in truth and form like do, do you feel like in situations like that they are being honest because i mean historically when it comes to like women's bodies there is this thing that actors tend to do of just like oh no you know i hike and i eat pizza and that's why i am you know looking the way that i do which i think is often not true but when it comes to like these guys and their fitness regimens do you think they really are honest with like what it takes to look like that 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, Jonathan Majors, when he was talking about uh, magazine dreams, for example, like, you know, there was a line going around where he had to consume like 6,000 to 6,100 calories a day. And he was working out three or four times a day. And, you know, all, all of these things, uh, unless you're being paid a zillion dollars per movie with all of the personal trainers and dietitians and nutritionists, like in your orbit that you can get are just impossible to kind of maintain, or like to, to, to reach and then maintain for the duration of a shoot like those kind of like bodily standards those those physical standards i should say i will say and this is like this is you know not to not to the detriment of either of their work but when i when i walked into the room they weren't quite as like sizable and gargantuan as i was as i was expecting i mean maybe maybe that's a symptom of what the what the lens does to a figure but but also maybe it was just because they weren't working out three or four times a day as they as i'm pretty certain they said they were for for creed but i think the funniest thing was when michael b jordan was talking about his body in creed 3 and he was like, well, you know, for the narrative, we have to show that he has kind of a dad bod. And, you know, he's not quite as fit as he used to be in Creed, Creed 1 and Creed 2. And I was like, dude, you can't, you actually can't say that. Like, you're not allowed to call your Adonis, funnily enough, physique in those movies a dad bod. Or there is even specifically in this movie, a dad bod. There, there is not an ounce of fat on you. Your body fat percentage is still like 9%. Like, let's not take the piss. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's. I, I, I read David Ehrlich's review, the, the joke he made that really made me chuckle about like how they call him old and broken down at one point, and it's like immediately followed by like a training montage of him kind of like pulling an airplane with his pecs. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> it's not that old yeah. and broken down. Like, like he's he's unshaven. That's like the main. That's the main tell. Oh, the god, that is so sad though. The idea that kind of that is what anybody could ever consider a dad bod. Because I was watching Die Hard the other day and it really like struck me that like Bruce Willis has a normal-ish, I mean, he's in great shape, but he has a normal-ish physique. And like now we expect these actors to be actual kind of marble statues. I mean, like, Christina, do you think there's something that we're kind of losing when we make them have to be so inhuman? Well, there's that great piece that we, we spoke about. I think we've spoken about before that um, everyone is beautiful and no one is horny, which I can't recall the name of the website it's on, but it's just such a, it's from the other year. And it's just a wonderful essay looking at how we've basically exchanged these sort of almost Ken-like male physiques for any actual sexuality on screen. Um, there's something kind of like plastic about their perfection. And, you know, you definitely have that in Marvel. And I mean, as a straight woman watching Creed 3, I I wouldn't say that there's certainly no sexuality in it, really. I mean, there's like one brief scene where Michael B. Jordan and Tessa Thompson are flirting and then like kissing and like, yeah, they're probably gonna have sex. But like, it's generally speaking, not not particularly interested in sensuality. And that's fairly indicative of when you when you see these kinds of like beefcake physiques, there seems to be something that happens where like, the physical perfection goes in one direction and the, the sexuality and sensuality just goes steeply downhill it's yeah so like, it's a gaze of admiration yeah it's like how can i either how can i achieve that or oh my god he's that's he, perfection like it's yeah it's like putting a statue on a shelf rather than somebody that seems approachable in any way no absolutely and it's funny you mentioned bruce willis and die hard because i often look at myself in the mirror and think if i was born in the 90s i'd be such a sex symbol because i'm not like <laughs> not not to sound too egotistic. hot for the 90s that's me being a t-shirt <laughs> I, I would be hot for the 90s. my partner sent me like a video of I think it was is it I don't watch Friends but I guess it's Chandler and he has his shirt off and he's like you know he's, he's in he's in good shape he's got muscles and he's like but he's still got like he's got like body fat to him and everything and he's like this looks so much like you and I was like I, I'm telling you I, if I was born in the nineties like I'd be on magazines I'm 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 not I'm not to inflate my ego too much <laughs> but you're allowed to there were you were allowed to have like like fl- like you know not flaws but like yeah you're allowed to have body fat allowed to like be a person that eats eats a burger you know like it's um yeah it must it must just be exhausting for these guys so i think it's it's particularly interesting like with a boxing movie so michael michael b jordan has always had that you know he's had that from the beginning sort of this real physical perfection he's obviously always been in great shape but there are really only a couple of fighters that looked or look like that a lot of the great professional fighters are not built that way like the two are not mutually exclusive i mean the heavyweight champion of the world is not always built like a a, like adonis creed or like anthony joshua who's kind of a a main person you would think of i think when you think of somebody that's built that way well it's kind of like tony bellew right in the first one i mean like he is in amazing shape but he's not 
ripped to shit. He, he, I, he'd never describe him as an everyman because he's got that muscular, kind of like that boxer's physique. Again, I don't know the tech the technical terminology and stuff for this for this realm because I, I don't watch boxing but like you know he's he's obviously in like good shape but he's a bit stocky and you know he's a bit you know he's, he hasn't got like uh you know a uh, washboard abs or anything like that like you know he's he's clearly i, just, I, I don't know i mean I, I guess that's i think that's that's an interesting contrast as well actually he's a bit, he's a bit more like a like a fighter on the street well yeah and i mean look at tyson fury who again heavyweight champion of the world is the one of the most strangely built all due respect strangely built men of all time. I mean, he's six foot nine, so he's, he's enormous, but he's like kind of, he's got these really long arms, which makes him an extremely effective switch hitter and a very tricky fighter. But like, he, he's always got, he always looks like he has love handles. Like he's not, he, you know, he looks like he's been completely raised on beer and potato and he hasn't, that, that actually does not preclude him from being in incredible physical shape and having incredible endurance. But it's interesting that you, we literally have more variety in those ways of the actual professional athletes' bodies than we do in like the depictions of them. Well, nobody but, wants to look um, at that, yeah. right? Nobody wants to, it's, it's Hollywood is selling us the dream, you know, and we want them to look that way, don't we? That's not my dream. I'm a very much a preference of the hot in the 90s men, such as, such as the gorgeous Jack King. <laughs> So if I wasn't a tried and tested homosexual lady, you'd be first on the list. But I mean, I, I but on the subject of homosexuality, I think it's also interesting. I think it's also interesting to look at how uh, kind of like how body standards to an extent. I don't know if this is the right way to phrase it, but we, we look at men who would fulfill the, the kind of like the, the expectation of the twink, right? Like the twink, we are like, there was that big piece, I think it was in the New York Times magazine, like two, three, four years ago, where like it was declared to be the age of the twink, right? And you have actors like Timothy Chalamet and Austin Butler, I think would qualify as a twink as much as, you know, some people might argue against that because he's in his early thirties and a twink. Apparently like the cutoff is like, you know, depending on who you ask, twenty three to twenty nine. But like the i like the idea of like the 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 twink and the the skinny young looking like boyish man is in the ascendancy as well. I think so. You kind of have these two contrasting ideas. We have like the the big you know giant kind of like Michael B. Jordan and Jonathan Majors types, and then you have like the Timothy Chalamets of the world who are also kind of occupying and and hold like the most currency and capital as like sex symbols. I think right now. Yeah, I mean, there's something really interesting about the opposition between threatening and non-threatening men. Yeah, yeah, love that. And I think like they're for many cultural reasons. And gendered reasons, I think like the youngest generation, like Zoomers probably do gravitate more towards a non-threatening man. Of course, it's more complicated Apart than from that, Jacob Elordi. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that man is so good looking that it's like trying to stare directly into the sun. He kind of transcends all yeah. taste. <laughs> Though I do feel like that about Austin yeah. Butler too. I don't care how you want to, however you want to like classify or categorize Austin Butler, whatever it is, is working and that's fine. Like, I have no arguments there. <laughs> I don't care what people say. I like the new voice. Mm, yeah. <laughs> oh, no, I like absolutely. it too. I like it so much that I don't want to talk about it on a podcast because it's just going to veer very quickly into the inappropriate. <laughs> well, well, I think we're, we're well past veering into the inappropriate. <laughs> but yeah, let's get a move on. You can join our community of film lovers by becoming a Little White Lies member. You'll receive exclusive perks and an insider's view into the world of Little White Lies while directly supporting our independent film journalism. Set Little White Lies membership via your search engine and click through to the SETI HQ page for a detailed breakdown of the plans. Now on to the movies. After dominating the boxing world, Adonis Creed has been thriving in both his career and family life. But when a childhood friend and former boxing prodigy Damien resurfaces after a long sentence in prison, Adonis must put his future on the line to battle Damien, a fighter who has nothing to lose. So, Christina, as Jack said in our previous emails, we have some, one of the best people for this subject on the program, as you are such an expert in boxing and in film. So, should we start you off by asking, what is it that makes a great boxing movie? Oh, what makes a great boxing movie? I think, I mean, obviously there's the most basic part, which is the mechanics of how 
fights are filmed. The, the, the nature of boxing, maybe more so than a lot of other sports, it lends itself to filmmaking. It's propulsive. It's movement in, in a similar way to dance. It has elegance. And of course, it has violence. It's got, you know, two sides of that coin, which means that there is natural drama. There's a natural narrative and two men or women fighting each other, the drama of that. And then often, as happens in real life, those two people, whether they have a real rivalry or whether it's just for a payday, at the end, kind of finding some kind of reconciliation or respect for one another after having essentially just pummeled each other. There's such a natural drama and narrative to it anyway. So a great boxing film should be able to milk that to uh, its full extent and use the ring as a microcosm to talk about human relationships, about politics, maybe, about race, about masculinity. And so with Creed Three, what you have is a film that maybe not so much on the politics, and, and I think probably glances around race, but really what you get in Creed Three is a, is a film about male tenderness, male friendship, male rage. And with Adonis Creed and his old friend, played by Jonathan Majors, you have this incredible rivalry and this incredible guilt from the from the backstory of their childhood together that makes for some really like exciting show-offs between them and makes the final fight between them really worthwhile and really exciting to watch. Jack, from your perspective, not being a huge boxing person, I mean, like, how did you enjoy the film? Did you enjoy the fight scenes themselves? Are you more interested in kind of the, I would say, psychosexual tension between the two men? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you know, I'm I'm much more simple than that. I just, it's just, I, I think it has a lot of heart. The same as like, you know, the, the, the Rocky movies, right? Where it's just, you know, you have this, I already guess it's a version of the Rocky movies, right? You have Dame who comes in as the underdog, like going up against the, the champion in, 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 for, in Donnie's role and everything. Like, like Christina said, it has that kind of like natural drama to it that is so exciting to see. And it's kind of undergirded by the, the, the technicality of like the boxing scenes and everything. I'm not incredibly au fait with with boxing as a sport but I, I i i don't know i feel like i'm naturally drawn to to boxing movies i always like enjoy watching them i love i love a training montage we, we i think we, we we talked about this already um can't remember if it was on the pod before but just you know like the idea of of uh, michael b jordan you know dragging a plane up a up an airstrip or something like that you know doing all of these like ridiculous and melodramatic training exercises you never see them like running on a treadmill it's always you know running up the steps of uh, of whatever it is in philadelphia or you know beating the shit out of meat in a meatpacking facility <laughs> or you know punching a tree you know it's 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 all of these kind of like these hyper dramatic demonstrations of of male physique i i really enjoyed it i think that um Jonathan Majors is such a, an eye-catching presence on screen like i i like michael b jordan i think he's been you know he's he was one of the best things about Black Panther, I really enjoyed him like Fugue Station, and he's he's great in the first Creed and and, and uh, the the sequel, which I the sequel I haven't I haven't seen in a long time, but I mean he's he's always a fantastic screen presence in himself. But Jonathan Majors, my God, he's just so magnetic, and I, I came out of that thinking like you know because I, I I'd obviously seen the last Black Man in San Francisco, and I ended up seeing Ant Man Three Quantumania like later that evening, which you know again Jonathan Majors innocent. Um, but I came out of Creed 3 thinking like, this guy is, this is bona fide movie star. And I know that's now the kind of the, the accepted and uh, popular thing to say, because everybody loves Jonathan Majors, but like, there is a good reason for that. Like he is just really, there, there just has that kind of like charisma and pizzazz and that kind of that magnetic weight that, you know, you really want like a, a, a leading guy to have. I think when we talk about Rocky antagonists, like we talk about the Rocky movies in relation to their antagonists, right? We talk about four, we talk about Ivan Draco and Dolph Lund, like we, we do that naturally. And this movie has that. It has a great antagonist in Jonathan Majors. And yeah, I couldn't agree more, honestly, because he, I think it, it, the, the film sort of lives or dies on the believability of that antagonist. And the second film went for Ivan Draco's son, who has um, a small role in this as well. Florian Montu, who I think is a, like, I want to say he's a real life, like an MMA fighter or something. Comes from like an MMA background. He was a good antagonist in a, in a kind of uh, cartoonish, exaggerated way. But you actually have something more grounded with Jonathan Majors because of the background of the story that he's from Crenshaw, that he's had a, like a, a tough upbringing, that he's ended up in prison and then ended up doing an 18 year stretch in prison. You, you really believe that this guy has had this life and he's got all this sort of seething rage 
were underneath the surface that he needs to sort of exercise in some way. And the combination of affection and also anger and resentment that he has towards Michael P. Jordan and his success is, yeah, he's just great at telegraphing all of that. And of course he's doing a Mike Tyson. He's clearly, you know, that's why, that's why he's as big as he is. You used to see Mike Tyson walk into the ring. It was like his neck was just like as big as tree trunk. He's enormous. And you get that when you see like visually, there's all those throwbacks. He's wearing just black trunks into the ring, which Tyson always wore. He's got the menace as well. He, he really has got that scariness down. Yeah, there's a scene in the diner, which I thought was just as like thrilling and, and tense as like any of the actual violence that we see. But like in terms of the way that the fights are actually shot, were you kind of impressed by any of the like flourishes that Michael B. Jordan had, Christina? Yeah, actually, I think there's like a there's a real there's a real speed to the the editing works really well. And I think there's like a there's a great flourish in terms of the way the camera is constantly sort of bobbing around the ring with the fighters. And I do like its use of slow motion. And I like it's I like it's it has some callbacks to things like Raging Bull, you know, where the sweat's flying and the blood's flying. And like, you know, it's quite it's quite gruesome in that sense. You know, you can there's a bit in the fight in the in the kind of ultimate heavyweight championship title fight at the end where um, Major's like spits out his, his gum shield and the tooth comes out into the bucket and you see, I mean, all that bloody stuff is realistic and it's also, yeah, there's a real authenticity to it. However, I do have to say, I thought that the use of CGI in the final fight, there's a bit where it empties out the entire stadium uh, you know, as, as a very, very clangingly obvious way to say, okay, this is really a battle between these two men. It's in their heads. I found that a little hokey. But, you know, these films, they come from Rocky. A little hokey is okay, I think. I, on, on that subject, you know, I'm actually curious to know, what did you think of the product placement? Because there's, there's this one shot where, you know, it, it's end of the second act, something tragic happens. There's like the big elevated dramatic moment. And it, 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 there's a close-up on the side of Michael B. Jordan's sunglasses. And you can really obviously see the coach logo, which I presume is a product of his partnership with Coach. And then there's also a scene where you see like Donnie in a Ralph Lauren advert, which is like a big billboard in LA. There are like so many shots of like Hennessy bottles that you walk out thinking, thinking like, oh, I really want some Hennessy right now. You know, it's, it's kind of like, it was the most egregious example of like really obvious product placement I've seen since like watching like one of the Daniel Craig Bond movies, where like every other shot was a Heineken bottle, like, you know, frosted and dripping and looking absolutely de- delectable. I mean, this is, the, this is that real first time actor directorial debut on a massive project vibe, isn't it? I think there's a bit of that like slickness. And I think it bleeds into the filmmaking a little bit because there's some messiness there, it feels like narratively there are things that have been kind of sliced and diced slightly with like the flashback structure where like there's some loose plot threads. And I feel like that's very much indicative of like an actor turned director on his first project on a franchise of this size. You got Stallone as a producer still. There is obviously all the drama with Stallone and rights with Erwin Winkler, the you know producer. And so I feel like there was probably quite a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes in terms of that and in terms of like yeah egregious product placement seems like another symptom of like there being a slightly by committee influence and i think michael b jordan's done a, a, a really good job at not being completely subsumed by that but like you can see there are, there are fingerprints mm. and also just like i i guess there's something to, that i have to, to really celebrate about is that the, the soundtrack is so good I and mean, when i when i watched it um i watched it maybe a couple of weeks go i think and we went to the uh the the the, the studio um screening room or whatever and uh, you know their sound system is obviously amazing dolby atmos bloody blah, blah, blah but they opened with this remix of the watcher by dr dre and it just blows your face off like it's so 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 good like you know just like it like and and the the, the mixing and everything is incredible and like it, it really captures a sense of space and time but just you know on a, on a purely sonic level of enjoying a really really good song like so so good um and i think it's been the same throughout the series i mean with the with the first one lord knows that scene in the training montage and everything is just it's really great and they're mixing in some like old callbacks and everything like you get you get bits of like the rocky score right you get bits of the final bell and the the uh, the final fight sequence and everything no, again no spoilers but i think that's kind of expected at this point right 
Yeah, no, I mean, it's great. And it's also actually on a kind of similar note, every one of those punches, like you you kind of physically recoil from it when you watch it on the big screen. It's got like every single one seems to every jab, every uppercut just lands with a like, you're like, you can, you can hear bone crunching (laughs) under, (laughs) under the fist. It's, uh, it's quite visceral. Well, we should get some scores on this because I do feel that we could quite easily talk about this for another hour or so. (laughs) Christina, do you want to go first? In anticipation, in enjoyment, and in retrospect. I would say maybe like a three in anticipation. So I I thought the trailer was really good. I was interested in majors and I had had a brief phone interview with Michael P. Jordan about his own interest in in boxing, like growing up. So I was looking forward to it. But Creed 2 did temper expectations slightly because it's pretty, it's good, but it's pretty paint by numbers. So I was... Yeah, I was not sure. I was kind of on the fence. But fours for the rest, for for both enjoyment and in retrospect, I had an absolute whale of a time with it. I thought it was really thrilling. The emotional beats, even when they were a little sentimental and a little on the nose, they, they mostly got me. I thought, you know, I thought they were just effective, bluntly effective, maybe, but effective. And yeah, coming out from the other end, yes, there was some messiness. Like I said, there are some loose plot threads. Not perfect, but I would absolutely queue it up to watch again in a heartbeat. Jack, what about you? Uh, yeah, three, four, four for myself as well. Um, I, 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 yeah, I had a, I had a great time, but I think I can really add anything to, to what Christina said. It's just like really eminently watchable, you know. I mean, I came out. This, this is. I'm not trying to be derogatory, but like I came out and I texted somebody. And I was like, it's like such a perfect plane movie, and that, that's 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 totally to like to its merit. Like it's just it it goes by so quickly. It's so well paced. I think there's not. It doesn't feel like there's like a, a too much of a dull or a slow point in that. No, I was just kind of like gripped, gripped throughout. I thought it was great. Yeah, I, I, th- I think I'm kind of, this is one of the rare times that we are all perfectly aligned because that I, w- I would go with a three, four, four as well. I had a riot of a time. I think this is actually quite impressive as a directorial debut. And for me, one of the more impressive elements is that Michael B. Jordan gave such space to Jonathan Majors doing his thing and being a big presence. Because I think in the previous Creed and Rocky films, sure, there have been some great villains, but I think this was really one where he gave over a lot of like screen time and narrative to his co-star and like to the film's benefit but yeah great night at the movies next up close millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from noom like evan who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds salads generally for most people are the easy button right for me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. 13-year-old boys Leo and Remy have a close friendship at school and in the flower fields where they and their parents pick their harvest for home. When the schoolmates notice their intimate connection, they drive a wedge into the relationship and the rift proves devastating. Before we review the film, here's Little White Lies editor David Jenkins' conversation with director Lucas Dont about the film. 
Lucas, Angela. Hi. It's lovely to speak to you. Lovely. This is, this is for the uh, Little White Lies Truth and Movies podcast. I love Little White Lies. Ah, glad to hear it. <laughs> I really do. It's, it's not a joke. So, Lucas, Angela. Well, I want to start by asking, I guess, I, I, this, this idea of creating a screenplay centered around two boys and the sort of drama that exists between these two sort of young characters. Like, w- w- when did you see the dramatic potential in that, in that kind of dynamic? Um, <laughs> pretty early on. I think when we, when we started, Lucas had a, had a desire to talk about those themes, the, the, the themes we address in the film, about um, intimacy, um, about friendship, and I think most of the stories we know center around those themes. So there is a, quite a lot of dramatic <laughs> potential there, but we hadn't seen it in, in, in that combination. I remember when um, there was this one key thing Lucas said very in the beginning, we've seen so many films where, where especially men get physically close to each other because they're um, strangling or stabbing each other. But we hardly see men or or boys who are physically close because it's pleasant. And I'm not even talking in a in a sexual context. But the the the, the intimacy between two people is is something you hardly see, especially if they're men. And and the that that key thing I think started a lot. Yeah, I think it's this 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 dynamic that we have both felt that at at a young age as as a as a young man there's this point where you start to push away and be pushed away that i think both of us had always thought was very linked to our career experience to the idea of when you grow up that that there's a sort of fear that comes to exist around intimacy especially with other young men and i think there was this when we when we were exploring it and and we realized by actually by a lot of researches that we read around you know friendship and young men growing up that it was not that much about sexuality but that it was more of a sort of shared male experience mm-hmm. that it was more about masculinity and this world in which we have constructed and designed a sort of vocabulary and a sort of imagery and language that too often sees virility and masculinity as one and the same thing. And I I think that it makes young men from an early age take a step back from that authentic connection and look for more something which is performed. Mm-hmm. And I think it 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 deconnects in a in a profound way, not only from the other, but also from the self. Mm-hmm. And I think that is why so many men Adult men struggle to find closeness, and I mean that in a sort of broad sense of the term, to another, but also to a self. So for me, there's if I if I use strong ter- words, there's this sort of epidemic of loneliness that starts when we're young. It's fascinating to hear that you have this kind of polit- pol- you know, the sort of politics and the psychology and the ideology behind the film. So, you know, really, really kind of firmly in your head. Yeah. And I'd love to know, like, bet- between you in the kind of process of creating the film, when were you having these discussions? When we, when were you kind of solidifying these ideas? Was it bef- like, was it really early on, or were you kind of learning them as you were making the movie? Well, we we spent a couple of years <laughs> making this, and I think the ideas really crystallized while we were writing and and thinking but they were they were there from the very beginning and that was the reason why we wanted to talk about it and and i think a big part of our process is rather than just writing stuff down is constantly trying to rephrase the questions we're asking each other and ourselves and by trying to be as exact as possible in what it is you want to talk about or why it is you want to talk about that. I think that brings you, with with each and every version, brings us closer to what it actually is you want to talk about. Yeah, we have a very, we we have a very, how do I say it? 
I, how, how will you how say will it? I say this? <laughs> we have a very we talk a lot. We just we maybe we talk more than we write. We definitely. Angelo do. is a, a wonderful cook, mm-hmm. and Lucas is a very good eater. And I love to eat. <laughs> and so I, while Angelo is, I, I have this image, maybe I'm romanticizing it, but probably you like Go ahead. Go going like making wonderful food. And I'm just talking, I'm just this, this stream of consciousness of me, like saying all these things. And then Angelo, for me, you're more like, you'll, you'll say one thing, one very defined thing, or you'll pick something out of there. And then it opens up this new possibility or this new, I guess, opens up a door to a new way of looking. Mm -hmm. But I feel that it starts from a a sort of political desire. Mm -hmm. I mean, even though maybe the film feels very intimate and feels very personal, Mm -hmm. I kind of feel it starts from a very political point. Mm -hmm. That's also why I I think, for example, the opening scene of the film is in, in the darkness in a and bunker. In a bunker, in, an, in a sort of memory or something left behind from a vocabulary that we too often see. Mm-hmm. You know, men fighting, men fighting out wars, which is mm-hmm. a, a genre we have used to entertain people. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it has defined um, masculinity on screen for as long as we've been making films. I, I like the fact that they're fighting, they're not fighting each other, but they're fighting imaginary enemies. Yeah, yeah. For entertainment. That's indeed the opening scene. Yeah, and I think we are in this film also really talking about the soldiers on the inside, how this vocabulary and this brutality that is in this world, you know, when we when we look at the news, we see men mm-hmm. fighting out wars. We are talking about the wars on the inside in mm-hmm. this film and how, how the soldiers have turned their blades towards towards the heart rather towards than the other. When you when you met, you mentioned before about you, you 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 spent time researching the film and like from watching it there is a sense that there is a lot of time and judgment gone into the kind of shaping of the psychologies of the characters and how yeah. they react to things and not not in a, not an academic way yeah. but, but in in a way that you that, that you both know yeah about that world and I wondered what what how deep did your research go. There's, you, you can't you can't you can't forget certain yeah, things. Yeah. They keep they keep on popping up. I think there there was there was one key book that you brought to the table that really mm-hmm. that was another big spark or another key to unlock Deep Secrets by Niobe Way, mm-hmm. which is a, a woman who has dedicated her life to talking to boys, uh, actually talking to boys, listening to them, mm-hmm. which is something we don't often do. What's she asking them? She's asking them to talk about their male friendships, which is also a question they don't get often mm-hmm. asked. Uh, because we don't, we underestimate actually the importance that young men can find in other young men. And actually at the age of 13, these boys talk about each other in the most loving, tender way. I think in a society that more often portrays them in a sort of Lord of the Flies way, mm-hmm. I think... When you're actually listening to them at 13, it's pure love. And the actual word love is used as well. Yeah. And, and in, a, in a closeness, not as in a everyone's in love with each other, but the idea of loving your friends is, is very present in their language. And did this book help with that, the actual, the naturalism of the dialogue in the film? Because you do have this sense of like, you know, it feels... You know, it feels real. You know, as 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 in as in girl as well. I mean, you have a sort of sense of this quote unquote realism. Yeah. Did stuff like that help? Did you actually? Were you? Did you actually meet any sort of young young yeah. boys and talk 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 to them about these kind of issues that you deal with? I'm trying not to spoil the film as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know. I mean, I nourish. I, I think I when uh, I think I go on a sort of adventure and I. I meet a lot of people. I meet a lot of people that in some way are connected to the themes or the the roles in yeah. this film. I meet professors, I meet mothers, I meet I meet boys. Yeah. But I think the authenticness that you feel in their performances, mm-hmm. I think it is because when the script is finished, it is not finished. <laughs> uh, it is a sort of choreography. And... I invite the actors, and in this case, two 13-year-old boys, they read it during the last stages of casting. Because for me, it's really important that 
it's not only us choosing them, it's also them choosing us. And so they know when I tell them, you're only going to read the script once. Because I want it to be transparent. I want you to know everything. But I also want you to forget everything. Because for me, the worst thing that could happen is for you to study this text and copy what, what is there and just perform a sort of only sort of framework. Yeah. I want to make this be alive because I want you also to become a co-author. You are 13 at this moment in time. I'm no longer. And like Niobe Way, who listens to these boys and has a lot of confidence in them, I have two in Aiden and Gustav. Because when they talk about this script, when they talked at the very beginning, they said the most extraordinary, pure, radical, essential things about it. it to hear that is fascinating. And I mean, I wonder if I had read this script at age 13, if I'd have truly understood the ramifications of, of what happens in it. And did, did, you, did, you, did, they, did they understand it? I mean, did they really understand it? Yeah, I think they really, really did. We have a tendency as adults to always underestimate children, which is dangerous and, and stupid. Because maybe you don't have the words um, or the exact cultural or, or social framework to express certain things you feel and think and experience um, when you're 13. Mm -hmm. But they're there. You, you, you think about it. They make you feel good or bad or, 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 or whatever. And I think that the, the, the book... Um, Lucas talked about and the way Lucas works with them and the, 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 the trust we give them as well it all comes back to they, they know I mean they, they are living breathing human beings with a very very complex emotional inner life not just those two but the other hundreds we saw and the, the millions of 13 year olds who didn't come to the casting mm. I mean they, they all do and we have to treat them like those complex human beings as well and not put them into easy boxes that are easy to label and think of them as children, as blank slates where we can project our adult, I don't know, ideas of what kids should be on. So, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and it's also at the same time, I think it's a film where there is a sort of, I mean, it, it addresses, of course, dark themes, but it, it, it also leaves them off screen for so it, it it addresses mental health and i think in schools we focus a lot on the language of the head and not too often or not often enough on the language of the heart but mm -hmm. all these youngsters they feel things and experience things and go through things for the first time mm -hmm. and i stimulate because i'd only talk about the language of the heart with them so i i feel like it's very they can with me i said that about off screen because I think there's the things we have to really dive into more than the, than things we don't have to dive into, yeah. but that the audience dives into. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I think when we write, we try to find a way also to make it possible for these young people mm -hmm. to address these things with us mm -hmm. and not, even if it might be brutal, there's a brutal brutality to it to not to find elegant ways to address it. And to see it as, a, as an, an invitation rather than the, the, the ultimate end point of a conversation. It's, yeah. it's an, an, an opening, hopefully. Final thing then. This is a bit off-piste a bit. <laughs> but I'd love to know, just because just I'm a big fan of, of the actress Emily Deccan. Yeah. And, and specifically her, her, one of her collaborations with the Dardenne brothers. Yeah. I'd love to know how, how, if at all, the Dardenne brothers, what, what with them being quite big in, in Belgium, yeah. I imagine. Um, yeah. Ha, have they had it had any kind of effect on you? Do you, do you know them? <laughs> yeah, I mean, as a as a fellow Belgian filmmaker, they are a part of our. Yes. They're definitely a part of our conscious and our cultural heritage. and our cultural heritage. And you know, I think one one of the things where I really admired, and I think where they really showed me sort of possibility is is in their use of choreography. I think they are they are incredible choreographers with the camera and with their actors and there's a sort of dance that feels very natural and very organic but still is very performed. So I I I feel there's a sort of inspiration for me in that use of dance 
as also someone who always wanted to dance. Mm. And yeah, I think, I mean, I've, I've, I've admired their films as a film student. And I think they have also really questioned me, for me, also what, what then our take would be on, mm-hmm. on visuals and on language. And not just, not just that, but they, they have a, they're always level with their main characters. They're always on eye level. Mm-hmm. They don't look up. They don't look down. They never do. And it's, a, it's extraordinary to have such a body of work where they always try to be on eye level and try to really grasp and understand their main characters. It's this ultimate act of empathy and, and love. And we're back to where we started, but it's this intimacy with their main character that makes their film so powerful and vulnerable at the same time. Angela, Lucas, thank you so much for that. That was great. And thank you. Cheers. Thanks very much, David. So, Jack, would you like to start? When did you first watch this film? Was this in Cannes last year? Yeah, it was Cannes last year. You know, it wasn't something that I was uh, particularly anticipating or looking forward to. I I enjoyed Girl, but was obviously conscious of the controversies of of its climactic moment, which I'm sure we'll get into later. So I I was a bit um, bit on the fence in terms of in terms of Don's Don's work, but obviously he really showcased some like great directorial flair in, in that in the debut and. I it's it's a, it's a, it's a strange one, right? Because at the at the time, I was absolutely devastated. I was destroyed by this film because it, you know, the the first third is this gorgeous and captivating ode to to, to young male friendship, right? And it plays with the tensions of queerness. It plays with the idea of fraternity and queerness and everything at such a young age, and is so sweet and feels so well lived in. And it's in this beautiful idyllic utopian. Kind kind of backdrop you know in this in this like you know this like rural europe but it's so gorgeous and it's this you know it, it is it is it is really really beautiful and then the thing happens and i think from that moment onwards i was weeping the entire time um i was there with another colleague and you know every five minutes he just turned around to me and kind of uh, i mean between his own moments of deep grief would kind of like turn to me and just smile because i was there sobbing like my, my eyes did not stop watering however you know with with space and time to, to to consider it and to think about it i do wonder if i was if i fell into the kind of emotional traps that the film was setting it resonated with me with me on a personal level because when i was younger i had a similar not not a perfect facsimile or a perfect copy but like i had a i had a similar experience with a friend so it was very much touching a specific um, emotional nerve for me you know the questions of whether it's kind of a, it's it's trying to draw that emotional response out of you quite explicitly is is the one thing. But I, I did at the time find it really emotionally devastating, and I, I I still say it was one of my one of my favorite. I don't know if favorite's the right word, but it was one of the better and uh, more memorable filmic experiences I had last year. Certainly from Cannes. Christina, what about you? Do we, were there any dry eyes in the house when you first watched it? I mean, it's a it's a devastating film. It's a devastating film about for all the reasons Jack says. And, and I think just about like the kind of inability of, of course, for anyone of any age, the breakup of a, of a friendship and guilt around that and external pressure around that. And then, you know, of course, the, the devastating consequences of, of it in that particular scenario. It's, uh, it's incredibly painful to watch, but I, I do agree with Jack that there is, there's sort of, it's a film of two halves, you know, the first half, which feels idyllic. And there's this really beautiful, like physical closeness between Leo and Remy's characters and that they, 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 it feels very natural and very, they just seem like extensions of one another. And yeah, like it's that coming of age moment where they begin to, to see, you know, because of school, because of the, the way that the social hierarchies of school are and the, the cruelty of children, that there's something perceived as wrong about their closeness. And all of that stuff is just really well observed, I think. And and Dante gets so much out of just close-ups of of their faces, so much out of the eyes of his actors, which is all really, really wonderful. It does run the risk of being quite emotionally manipulative by the conclusion. I did sort of feel like I was being hit over the head with it a bit by the conclusion. And I think it's similar to you, Jack, where it's like, you know, I, I really admire it as a piece of filmmaking. And I think what it's doing and what it's saying is really worthwhile. But I, yeah, once you're kind of away from the emotional brutality of it, you, you start to ask yourself, okay, well, narratively, it becomes a much less interesting film in the second half, I think. 
Mm-hmm. And I think that some of the characters, for example, um, Sophia, I think is the mother of, of one of the one of the two leads. I think her actions are really questionable and kind of icky. They're, they're, this is a I'm trying to speak around spoilers, but it's a, it's it's an incredibly traumatic experience for everybody involved. It's just I I I felt as though. There is there is a certain sequence right at the end, which involves a conversation that they have in the car, which leads to, uh, you know, a, a something of a, you know, of a confession, which then leads on to something else. And their, their, their actions kind of like defy any kind of real emotional logic for me in that in that moment. And I, and I remember what, even when I was watching it again through, you know, a, a film of tears thinking, you know, it's like it, it, this is really, really quite brutal on her part. You know, like, they, they, and I and I know that grief manifests in different ways. And maybe this is representative of that, but I was wondering, like, would it, would it, would any person really act in this manner with this child after this thing has happened? You know, knowing everything that everybody's been through, which kind of it kind of soured it a little bit for me, and, and it is more so the more I've thought about it in the subsequent months. But yeah, I, I, I do, I do think, however, like like you say, the, 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 it being a film two halves, like the, that first half is just gorgeous just really really gorgeous i was always always like really sad that it and i know this is the entire point but like it was sad that it kind of moves away from that and it does what it does that big that big twist like i don't i I would have quite happily seen i don't know if this would be conducive of um, interesting conflict and drama but i would have quite happily just like basked in the warmth of their tactility and their closeness for that film because that feels kind of like quietly revolutionary in a way you know like to capture two young boys in the way that don does i think it, it is just their closeness it is just those those shots of them in bed together and it's not treated with any kind of taboo it's not treated as strange it's just what young boys do not thinking about it in like adultified like sexualized terms and all this kind of stuff it's just it's just really sweet yeah and i I guess it also kind of begs the question of and again yeah this is part of the point how much guilt leo's character is supposed to carry of course we feel terribly for him and we don't i don't think we're you know, in the position to be accusatory, don't get me wrong. But I do wonder if it is sort of almost offering him up as a sacrificial lamb to the kind of the the internalized homophobia of this. Yeah, for sure. And uh, yeah, I guess I wonder, I'm kind of left wondering what it's saying about that in some ways. Eden Dambrine, the, the young actor, just phenomenal. Like, my God, like to, 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 to carry a picture of that kind of emotional weight and that nuance and that complexity, like both in terms of his character and his character's interiority and then, you know, the, 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 the events writ large, like, like so, so incredible. And just, just again, it's a screen presence. It's just, you know, it just sells that emotionality so, so well. I mean, and then also, I mean, it kind of, it, I, to me, that kind of element makes the filmmaking all the more impressive because obviously there's huge restrictions in terms of how much you can shoot with these young actors and stuff. And I wonder whether that really did benefit the filmmaking because you could kind of feel a thoughtfulness to a lot of the shots. And I wonder whether having a little bit more space in terms of how much they could film really worked to its benefit. But yeah, we should get some scores on this because we've got another banger right afterwards. Not that I'm going to call Close a banger. That doesn't seem <laughs> quite <laughs> right given the subject matter jack do you want to go first in anticipation enjoyment and in retrospect yeah i mean i'm i'm conflicted on this i really am i hadn't thought about my retrospective score at least until this this very moment a three in anticipation um we didn't really cover in, in the end the kind of controversies of girl and everything and you could you could wax on about that in, in an entirely uh, different podcast but um five for the actual moment the experience i i again i was i was blown away i think in retrospect though like a like a three maybe i've, I've really called on it but i don't know if that's being hard it would be like a it's like it's like a, a high three or a soft four because i i because I, I i i don't know if i'm being too too unfair so i was gonna have to watch it again again to find a, a to draw a real conclusion there but maybe a four i think a four just to be just to be cautious but it, it, it's on that it's on that um that line christina what about you i would go to expectation i i liked girl but i just i was sort of i, I kind of came in cold with this film, like I, I didn't really have any um, grand expectations around it at all. I would say, I would say four for the experience, in spite of the fact of it being kind of harrowing. But I was really, I thought it was visually very beautiful. I was very taken by it. I thought 
Layla, kind of what you said about there's a certain like rhythm to it. Like there's a gentleness to the rhythm because of the, the way it sort of times that tenderness and, and the, the, those moments. And I would say probably three in, in retrospect, just be, for some of the reasons I said, which is that, you know, I think perhaps it's slightly less than the sum of its parts. Although I think it's, it's a very well-made movie. It's a very well-intentioned movie. It's a wonderfully active film, but yeah, I, I'm not sure. Maybe like Jack, maybe I need to see it again. I, I think it is definitely one of those sort of films where you could go either way on it. For me, I would say probably fours across the board. I saw it a lot later than you guys because I was not at Cannes and I'd kind of, its reputation somewhat preceded itself. Enjoyment, it was just as devastating as everyone said it was. And But there's kind of that idyllic scenery of like, I think it's you know, the, those flower farms and those like intimate moments between them really moved me. And yeah, for an retrospect, I think I've kind of been, obviously I don't have much retrospect as you guys, but I've been really kind of passing over all those like near tragic moments of like my youth. It's, it's given me kind of a level of empathy for myself as a, as a 13 year old that I, I didn't necessarily have before. Next up, film club. Following the end of the Civil War, former soldier Buck helps former slaves find settlements in the West. Con artist, the preacher, joins the group and much to Buck's chagrin. But when a gang of bounty hunters, led by the fiendish Deshay, attempts to round up the freed slaves and bring them back to Louisiana, the two put aside their differences to fight a common enemy. So, yeah, in, I mean, in a way, the kind of theme of this week is, is bromance. We've got three pairs of men. And in this case, Belafonte and Poitier. I mean, like, what did you kind of make of their central relationship and chemistry? Because they were longtime kind of friends and rivals. I mean, I'm not as historically literate as either of you guys are. Um, it's not a period of film history that I'm very knowledgeable of. I, you know, I've seen their Poitier standards and I've seen movies with Belafonte. And I'm aware of their real life relationship and everything. But I um, I, I think I was most captivated by by Belafonte's performance, actually. Like, you know, it's just like that that like really rich and expressive, like not not quite. I don't know if you'd quite describe it as melodramatic. And I'm, I'm curious as to know what you guys think. I, I I just thought he was a really captivating and fun screen presence, and it balances nicely with 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 Poitier's slightly more downbeat presence on screen in this in this film specifically. Is the the contrast of their performances is really great, and then the the teeth. I mean, the teeth, the poor man, those fake teeth are just you know they are they are again another there there are some close ups or like you know some mid close shots on him where you just see like the teeth are almost like centric to the frame, and you're just like wow, like that 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 mouth that is that is a real Western mouth. Well, you know, I know that Poitier and Belafonte were, were longtime friends and Ruby D as well. They, they all knew each other from um, the American Negro Theater in the late 40s and 50s in New York. So they went way back. But there was always a bit of a rivalry between the two men. And a part of me, a part of me is like, did Poitier direct this film and saddle Belafonte with those teeth on purpose? Was this like a, was this like a low key undermining thing that he did? Was he like laughing to himself about this like behind, yeah. behind his back or something? God, I love that. One of my favorite stories. I mean, the two men, the two actors, their kind of lives and careers are so intertwined. But one of my favorite stories about the two of them is that kind of, you know, Belafonte was really the star of the, the American Negro theatre and Poitier was kind of the scrappy underdog who was coming and trying to get rid of the fact that he had a thick Bayesian accent and kind of wasn't the kind of classic romantic lead by the lens of of, of that theatre. <laughs> so they were debuting a new play and uh, you know, Poitier was the understudy and he was working as a janitor at a time, as was Belafonte, but Belafonte couldn't get out of his janitor shift that night. So, and, but Poitier could. So he went on and that is actually how his entire career was kickstarted, all down to a very unmovable boss of Barry Belafonte. So he would not <laughs> let him wow. do the premiere of his new play because he had to do his janitor shift. Wow. Wow. That is certainly something. So, Christina, I've got to assume with your kind of incredible knowledge of this period of film, this is not the first time you've seen Back in the Preacher? No, but I hadn't seen it in a while. A few years ago, I wrote a, a piece for, for Movie Notebook about Harry Belafonte. And so that's probably the last time I, I watched it. It's such an interesting moment of movie history and of sort of history of racial representation on screen as well, because it's 1972. You've got Sidney Poitier's directorial debut. 
he's um, more than gained the respect and love of the world and audiences and his industry. He's um, an Oscar winner. So Poitier had this string of incredible classics, uh, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, Lily's Field uh, in the 60s. And by the time he was turning his hand to directing, there's, you know, the rise of a whole new genre of Westerns, particularly, uh, revisionist Westerns, Westerns that are starting to deal more with the treatment of Native and Indigenous people. It's just really interesting period of film history in terms of like the Western stuff, but also in terms, because Buck and the Preacher is really interesting on the relationship between Native Americans and freed slaves and the characters in the film. But it's also interesting in terms of black exploitation, which Poitier always claimed to dislike enormously. He said the black exploitation films were anti-woman, they were demeaning. They were a poor re- representation of Black Americans. So in, in some ways, Buck and the Preacher and his film following this were his answer to what he felt was the kind of negative impact of Black exploitation. Now, I don't particularly agree with Poitier, but there's a, that's a whole, like, it's complicated. And... Buck and the Preacher is really interesting in the, the way it deals with racial politics. It's it's going all the way back to me in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War. And it's, it. I mean, it kind of functions as a microcosm of what kind of solidarity is needed between people of various backgrounds. Obviously, the, you know, the Belafonte character is a shifty, slippery character. The Poitier character is much more upstanding, good, decent guy. And what they have to do to work together in order to, you know, overcome this awful bandit villain this white man. So yeah, I think it's it's a really interesting like microcosm of race relations, but it's also just a really fun film to watch. It's really lighthearted, all told. You could come away from it and be like, well, yeah, that was kind of political, but you know what I mean? And in, in a way, it's it's the, the perfect middle ground of a, of a genre film and something which has a little bit more substance to it. Yeah, I mean, the uh, it's always very interesting to me looking back at these kind of earlier black films because you, I think you can feel the burden of representation that these kind of filmmakers and, and, and actors were feeling. But I have to say the the just absolute mustache twirling villainy of uh, of Cameron Mitchell's Deshay, I, I I found him such an enjoyably horrific villain. I mean, Jack, for you, was there was there some kind of camp fun to be had from him? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's like you say, it's just, it's just, I'm, I'm very much coming from a layman's perspective as much as I, I actually at uni studied American history and culture as part of my literature degree. So like, I'm, I'm, I'm familiar enough with the context of the time, the civil rights movement and it coming out in the wake of that and everything. And I think like Christina, Christina, like you say, it, it, it makes for an interesting microcosm of those tensions between the different factions, you know, fighting for political enfranchisement and fighting for fighting against depression in, in that period. But no, it's, but it is just, it's just a fun film. Just it's just a cracky western. I think I I had I had a good time at the movies. Yeah, I mean, coming to it now, I've I've seen, I've seen it a couple of times before. But as soon as the kind of opening credits started, I had this moment of joy, which is like, oh, and it's so pretty, and it is. It's really pretty. <laughs> Like, yeah, I think I've kind of had a few too many sludgy blockbusters in my eyes of late. That like actually seeing color and texture was a real joy. But uh, yeah, we should move on to my favourite part of the podcast. One last thing. So, Jack, I'm very excited to find out what is your non-movie recommendation for this week? So that's to be quite less. I had to be kind of lateral for this. I think we're in a bit, a bit of a quiet, quiet period. I think I've touched on in terms of uh, culture outside of, of film because of the award season taking up all the, the oxygen in the room and everything there. And then, you know, in terms of TV, we've had stuff like The Last of Us, which I think has been the kind of like the the, the main event um, of 2023 so far. But I'm not going to recommend anything kind of culturally significant. I am a big Arsenal fan. I love football. At the moment, Arsenal are doing incredibly well. So most of my enjoyment in life has been drawn out of the successes of Arsenal Football Club. <laughs> um, I, I, I think uh, I think we're top of the league now, five points ahead of Man City. I'm not sure how familiar Little White Lies' um, esteemed listenership are going to be with football, but five points ahead of the league leaders last year is very good. Soccer. We love Bakayo Saka. Bakayo Saka is, <laughs> you know, is is the star boy. He is one of my top five people in the world in the present moment. So yeah, it's if I'm if I'm 
granted any escapism or any kind of any kind of nourishing niceness um, in any uh, sliver of my life presently it is arsenal's continued success and may long it continue you know you're talking to an arsenal supporter yourself so you have come to the right place i have been in this country for 13 years and i have never i have never tied myself to a team because i just ha- i don't know i just haven't i do really like football but like i feel like the 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 to complete my journey to becoming a proper football fan, I do need to like throw my weight somewhere. So I'm considering, I mean, but right now Arsenal's doing so well, well no, that it feels a bit Johnny come well, lately. No, <laughs> so I think I'm going to wait to see what happens and hope, and hopefully they win. But then after it's all done, then I can decide. And it, the decision is, it, it's, it's not a decision. I'm definitely going to do it, but I don't just want to be like that American. That's like, Oh yeah, they're at the top. Jack and I have suffered. We have suffered. <laughs> the world. So this is funny though, because this there I have a perfect segue from what Jack was recommending. I had no idea he was going to say a sports thing. I also am picking a sports thing, so I don't know what that what's that saying about our current cultural landscape or whether it's just uh, something in the air today. But I thought, in the spirit of Creed Three, I would recommend what I think is one of the most exciting fights coming up. It's coming up in April in Las Vegas. I think it's April twenty second, and it's two really exciting young fighters, very different styles. They both really dislike each other. It's sort of a grudge match. And that's Ryan Garcia and Gervonta Davis. Ryan Garcia, good looking Latino kid, bit of an Instagram star, like very pretty by fighters, uh, fighters terms, perhaps a little too full of himself. Gervonta Davis, tattooed, tough, been called a mini Mike Tyson. So this is a much smaller weight division. And his nickname is Tank. They call him Tank. So that's, it's like brutality versus prettiness. It's just going to be, I think it's going to be an absolutely classic boxing match. So make this rom-com, I say also. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I would watch that. Thank you very much. So if you've got thoughts on these films, you can email Truth and Movies at TCO London or tweet us at LW Lies. Next week, a slasher franchise refuses to stay dead in Scream 6. I really get my commitment to this gig tested as we look at the Winnie the Pooh horror remake, Blood and Honey. And for Film Club, further quality is assured with Friday the 13th 6, Jason Takes Manhattan. Plus, I will be talking to triple threat Cynthia Erivo about her career and starring in Luther, The Fallen Sun. So thanks very much for tuning in. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Truth and Movies is hosted by me, Leila Latif, and my guests this week with Christina Newland and Jack King. The podcast is produced by TCO London and edited by Bob Stankus. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 